in case you missed it, my book Anatomy of Abundance hit the market and it is officially an Amazon bestseller. We couldn't have done it without your help. Thank you for being here and supporting me. If you haven't picked up your copy, pick it up today. Learn how to transcend the limits of scarcity and rewrite your life's narrative, transforming it into a story of boundless prosperity and fulfillment with Anatomy of Abundance. Join renowned author Petrina Wisdom and 16 Brilliant Minds on a Transformative Journey. Discover awe-inspiring narratives and empowering strategies to attain abundance in relationships, career, health, and wealth. Every purchase breathes life into a remarkable cause, donating book proceeds to the Shine Organization. Shine Organization empowers sex trafficking survivors to break free from scarcity, fear, and past traumas, and boldly create their own unique path to abundance through entrepreneurship. Buy your copy today. You're listening to Fuck Being Stuck, the podcast where we spotlight women who've gone from managing to mastering life's challenges and the badass practitioners that are changing the way we heal. I'm Dr. Sabrina Nicole, psychologist, coach, author, and speaker. But more importantly, I'm a woman who had my own journey to mastering chronic pain. You don't need to be stuck anymore. Fuck that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Fuck Being Stuck. My guest today is Nina Everflow. She's an integrity activist. She holds space for courageous folks yearning to resensitize, remember, and reconnect to their wholeness. Through her blog, coaching services, and expansion events, she transparently illustrates the gap between what we say we value and our actual behaviors, facilitating courageous spaces to try on practical tools for bridging that gap. She draws from her diverse experiences of training humanitarian aid workers, intuitive gardening, living in six countries, studying ancient cultures of Kemet, Sumeria, and Mayan, surviving corporate trauma, healing herself from epilepsy, writing a master's thesis on the wisdom of Rwandan reconciliation practices, intercultural marriage, and over 25 years of daily spiritual devotion. Nina lives on the unceded land of the Monacan now known as the farmlands and forests of South Central Virginia with her multiracial family. I had never heard of that land before. There's so much to unpack in this. Just from reading your bio, I'm like, do I really know her? Because, (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh, all the layers of experiences. And I can't wait to hear all about the journey to where you are now. Thank you. Well, so it's welcome, such an honor to, to be here with you and to, to share more and learn more about each other in these kind of conversations. Such a joy. Absolutely. So let's get started. Tell us more about your experiences with uh, DEI. Sure. I mean, I, I feel like one of the stories I really love to tell is this experience that I had when I was 18 years old. And I I grew up in a middle-class African-American household. My parents were, you know, community leaders involved in NAACP, community events, you know, po- local politics, all the things. And so I was attending a uh, an event that my mother was facilitating for the city government employees at the time. And so this is like back in the early 90s. And as I was sitting in the back, kind of just being her assistant for the day, she started the conversation to an auditorium filled with mostly white individuals and 
granted, we at, at the time we lived in, you know, Virginia on the Appalachian area. And so, you know, these are mostly white Southern folks. And she was here. She's, you know, just announced, you know, I'm here to talk about why it's uncomfortable to talk about race in the workplace, right? As her opener. And I just saw, noticed immediately <laughs> this white gentleman, older white gentleman sitting in the front row, opened up his newspaper to hide his whole body as a way of, you know, clear resistance to being engaged in this conversation. And I feel like the demonstration of that, as well as the, you know, illustration of my mother being like 100% present and involved and eager to hold space for this very challenging conversation was that spark for me about like what why it matters, right? That it's Hmm. that resistance and that, you know, the history of what African-Americans and so many oppressed people in this country and around the world have to engage is literally a life or death moment. And so I was really curious, even at that age, wanting to know, like, what is that resistance about? What is the conversation going on in that human and what does it take to cultivate environments where where that dissolves a little bit, right? Where there's more curiosity than resistance, where there's just a desire to see each other as humans and to start to dissolve this hierarchy that I, I love how Sonia Renee Taylor often refers to it as the the illusionary hierarchy, right? Like because somebody just thought that up that white folks were more important than darker hued people. So it's, you know, it's, so it's just like, we need to come to grips with all of these things that we've kind of made up as a, as a human family and return back to practices, you know, that ancient cultures all over the world have about recognizing our, our interconnectedness and our interdependence. Wow. So how do you start to use some of those techniques that you learned in the DEI space to help individuals in terms of your coaching and facilitating groups to help them transform some of that resistance like you described and becoming more curious than resistance or realizing that resistance necessarily isn't a bad thing to like run away from, that it's okay to sit with it for a second exactly, and then make a decision to move to a place of curiosity and exploring, well, why am I having resistance to this topic or mm-hmm. the situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that question. And I feel like that's such a beautiful theme that you dance around. Um, as I listened to a couple of your podcast interviews, asking about that shift, right? About like, instead of resisting the pain, leaning into curiosity about the sensation of like, what's going on. And I feel like that happens in that psychological dimension when we're talking about, you know, what are our cultural influences that keep us, that stop us from wanting to engage in that space with another person. It's kind of similar to what's going on maybe on a biological chemical level in our own bodies. So I think in many cases, the the work that I've kind of, my, my journey has led me through and being in the education space, I started first working with the Fulbright program office. And so it was a very global perspective in terms of how are people who have grown up and studied in different parts of the uh, the world, 
and then journeying to the United States to be in this, you know, really rigorous kind of program. How are they navigating through those intercultural moments where they're feeling that friction, right? Of like, what I thought was normal and natural and right to me is now not in this cultural context. Mm. And I feel like that is one of the greatest losses for a lot of Americans. The fact that so many of us don't have passports and then don't have that kind of experience to see that and feel and experience that, that very, you know, contrast culturally. And it because the contrast is a gift, right? It helps us illustrate, Oh, I assumed this was the case for all people, but in fact, it's just, me or my family or my cultural group. So yeah, so early in my career, starting with those Fulbright scholars was like such a gift for me to to witness, to observe, and then to have many similar experiences traveling abroad. And then I was working for the United Nations for nearly a decade and a lot of their humanitarian employees and training around leadership development. And at that time, the UN was transitioning from a kind of centralized university model to something that was more federated so that different country offices could have more internal control over how they were training their folks instead of sending them all to Geneva or New York City to be, you know, provided a certificate of now you are a leader. And in that, you know, working with the the organization who was supporting them through that transition, it was really shocking because some of their, literally some of their leadership curricula was like, how can you be more like Winston Churchill and George Washington and, um, wow. you know, Bill Clinton? And it's just like, these are the models of leadership we are expecting for our humanitarian aid workers. Like, it really was like such a revelation. And so I was really a strong advocate for them to you know, do the the easy level of just diversifying who we are holding up as a model, but also the harder work of uncovering what does leadership mean? What are the competencies that we are really, we identify and recognize in what makes this work well, right? Like a humanitarian environment is very unique. Um, if you can imagine, you know, the worst of war and conflict and natural disasters. And these are the people who are going right into them and trying to create some uh, structure and order from all of that chaos. So there are very specific kinds of leadership capabilities that they need that I don't think folks like Bill Clinton and Winston Churchill (laughs) really demonstrated. So (laughs) it was a really beautiful um, exercise, right, of, of doing DEI work, but integrated in leadership development, integrated into a very specific kind of context. And I feel like that that is the type of work that I've seen most effective, because then we're not segregating diversity and inclusion from being a leader. But in fact, they are the same thing. My demonstration of leading other people and inspiring them to, to bring their best to this collective effort means I need to understand myself and my cultural 
underpinnings and assumptions and emotional, you know, reactions, as well as the other people around me and being able to read that accurately, especially in times of stress and tension. And so that has really been the space that I've enjoyed writing curricula about and being a consultant about and, and then helped in my own journey of moving towards opening my own agency and supporting a number of industry leaders in the DEI space to to strengthen their programming and to to strengthen that relationship right between uh, leadership dynamics and being a more contextual aware emotionally aware culturally aware leader wow i love um what you said about leadership and the idea of really redefining what it means to you now cuz what leadership meant back in the times of you know, Abraham Lincoln and other leaders is very different. And the importance of the awareness, not just external awareness of what's going on around you, but within yourself in terms of diversity and how that got transmitted to the individual is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just remembering uh, over the summer, I took my mom. She just got her passport, 74 years old, Mm, her first international trip. She wanted to go to (laughs) Ireland so she chose Ireland. So that's where we went. And Excellent. we went on a tour in Northern Ireland. And, and they were talking about the conflict. And she was thinking, wow, oh, yeah, I heard about this on PBS. And then I realized her whole perspective was from what she learned on television about anything international because she had never traveled and saw yeah. it for herself. So she listened to the gentleman and he was you know, explaining to her, you know, there's more than one side to the story and you got one story, you know. Mm-hmm. On PBS, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is which she's obsessed with. You know, she watched a lot of PBS. And so she walked away and she was like, wow, you know, like, you know, I really she really learned something different, you know, from a perspective of a person that's gone through the conflict in Northern Ireland, you know, and has the conflict within his family. You know, one part is Catholic, the other part is Protestant. So he talked about his own internal dynamics within his family and then his larger role, you know, in the conflict over the years. Um, and it just opened her eyes in a way that just seeing her eyes open mm-hmm. with the newness of the experience, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So it is so important to be exposed, you know? It is. Absolutely. And that you're never too old, right? I love that. <laughs> I love exactly. That. It's never too late. And she's ready for the next trip. But <laughs> but um, yeah, it really is never too late to to learn, to redefine, to increase your awareness, raise your consciousness. Absolutely. Um, It's never too late. Mm -hmm. So I want you to talk a little bit about, you mentioned before in your your paperwork about integral intimacy and creating a foundation of honest self-awareness. Can you talk a little bit about that concept? So I have been, I feel like a a seeker, Uh, you know, the poet Rumi often talks or, or frames his, inquisition into the internal, into the non-physical as a seeker. I'm just curious and I mm. want to continue to dive in and, and learn. And my spiritual practice has definitely had that tonality. While I grew up in a Black church, I have been married to a Muslim man. I've you know participated in all kinds of religious and spiritual ceremonies. And I feel like there is a dynamic that across all of these types of activities, I have deepened my own relationship with myself. And I'll put like a a capital Mm. S on that self. So it's not just Mm. the 
the body self or the ego self, but the what I like to refer to as the true self, uh, the one who is the observer and the witness in all of this 3D reality. And so that's what I refer to when I'm thinking about integral intimacy. It's like having an intimate relationship with your biggest self, uh, with who you really mm. are beyond personality, beyond habits, beyond roles and responsibilities. Who are you and what are you doing here, right? What are you being here? What are you contributing here? What, what are you most curious about and have this gift of life? And so this has kind of been part of my, my lifelong curiosity. Um, again, as a teenager, I read Neil Donald Walsh's series, Conversations with God. And that was a real turning point for me about having this kind of intimate relationship with the divine that didn't need mm. any kind of third party. And so I wanted to find like, what are the practices then to deepen that, to, to really be with myself? And then what are some of the outcomes that happen when you, when you are doing that? So I started a, a blog most recently to share some of the, the insights and stories that I've been experiencing in this space, in this intentional journeying, because I, as I grew intimate with my own self, my uh, capacity to be intimate with life, the life external to me, deepened. So I'll give you an example. I'm an avid gardener. I grew up with a great grandmother who was always in a garden, always outside. And so it's just kind of been it's in my blood. And, and I would say I'm, you know, I'm okay at it. You know, I, I've most, of, most of my adult life when I've had, you know, the space, I've had some kind of garden around me and, and certainly I'm a, a plant mom and have lots of greenery in my house. But as I've continued this practice, part of it has cultivated a deeper, like noticing of the plants in mm. my life or of the of the plants in my garden. And so I I started to just be able to to pick up on the nuances of what is helping this plant thrive versus this one over here who's who looks a little bit more wilted. What is happening in the the different shades of green over with these strawberries plants versus the ones around the corner. And so really try I feel like just being in the relationship, being in the inquiry of that makes then these obvious things just kind of show up. And I'll have just intuitive hits around, you know, what my plants need. You know, some people say that their plants talk to them. And I don't, I don't know if I, I feel that, but I definitely feel like sensations of, you know, or pictures mm. in my mind, like, this plant is thirsty. This one needs to move to a new environment because it's too hot in this room. Or, you know, for this for the plants outside, don't plant the squash in that corner, plant them over in the next, you know, the next row or et cetera. So it really is or has created a a deeper like partnership with nature by being more intimate with my own self, by being more curious with my own inner work, then you know, life just kind of feels a little bit brighter and feel more attuned to it. And this is in greater contrast to when I'm less in tuned, right? When I'm really stressed about work or life or family and I feel like I'm off in my practices, then, you know, stuff like, you know, just stubbing my foot happens much more frequently as a way to, 
Give me to remember. Oh, I was too quick in my meditation this morning. I think that's what that reminder is about, you know, things like that. Yes. I'm just thinking like, what do you have to not do in order to be able to be present in that way? Like some people don't watch the news or don't watch a lot of television. You have to remove a lot of the external stimuli in order to reclaim that, that space to just be and notice. Yeah, absolutely. Even before we started recording, you had mentioned something that was happening in pop culture and I was completely oblivious about because, yeah, I don't watch the news. Exactly. I love that. I was like, wow, she must not watch the news. I need to be more like her this week. <laughs> it's very I was good. way I mean, too connected last I week. I know. I know. Mm. I mean, I, I, I love being on the socials, but even those I have to minimize, especially, you know, recently with all the stuff that's going on with with Gaza and Israel, I've and I followed way mm, too many activists yes. to be able to avoid that. But but yeah, but it is intense. And so I, I definitely notice on days when I've scrolled way too much or done, you know, too much political activism in terms of, you know, emailing and calling and stuff, that it's just like, okay, that's too much external pushing against, right? Uh, what I don't want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. And now I have to go nurture myself and refill my cup in order to to be the person that I really know I need to be for this world at this time. So yeah, it's really about finding what those balances are for oneself. Yeah. I know you're a meditator because I know I worked with you and you started with a centering exercise, which I loved. <laughs> um, what other practices and tools do you do you use on a daily basis? Hmm. I love conscious stream writing. That's my word for it, right? So I just pick up my journal and just kind of write wherever my mind wants to write. And I find that that practice helps empty my mind about all its chatter. And then I can go deeper into meditation. So I usually start with with that. And and I think yoga has been a really beautiful contribution to my not to my daily practice, but but certainly to my practice overall. I find a lot of joy recently in following Jessalyn uh, Stanley and helping me, you know, just the way because she has just such a beautiful, bigger body. Her demonstrations of the asanas and poses are just so much more mm. relatable than you know, most of my yoga experience has been taught by very skinny bodied people. So that's just been a beautiful, beautiful piece uh, um, that I've been enjoying a lot. And then, and then I pray, I am a a member of the Agape spiritual community that's based in Los Angeles. And I've been, you know, I, I mean, I live on the East coast, but I've been attending Agape since I was in my twenties. And so I, I go there in person sometimes, but most of the time I'm just tuning in virtually, but feel very connected to that community. And so one of the practices from from that spiritual community is affirmative prayer. And so there is a just the practice of like sitting in what you know to be true, like the big T truth of like the div- that all is truly well and the divine actually has a is consciously involved in all of life that when I can sit in that space, you know, it reduces the pressure about having to figure out everything and create some opening mm-hmm. for okay, well what is what is next for me to do? I know that the answer can emerge when I am 
receptive to it showing up. So affirmative prayer has been quite a gift. And I, and, you know, similar to, you know, what to avoid in terms of social media and the media in general, I really love to have podcasts and music that are uplifting and affirming. And I know we connected before about Chris and Teb or other artists like that, right? Who are just creating such Mm -hmm. beautiful, beautiful, positive and uplifting art and uh, music in particular that that I love just having in the background. And, you know, my kids are so tired of it because I'll just play an album on repeat. (laughs) It has helped me so much just to have it on constantly. Yes, yes. I, I spent a lot of time with podcasts as well. And definitely Chris and Teeb, they're, that's the first thing I listen to when I wake up in the morning, when I walk the mm. dog, mm-hmm. is that I'm listening to them and I'm bouncing around and I come in the house, jump on the trampoline while I'm listening to them. <laughs> so good. It's so I good. can't get enough of them. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about your journey with epilepsy and healing. Mm-hmm. You know, as I was thinking about this, this conversation, I was just like, what is, what is the moment where I I really like fucked being stuck where I was just like, I've had enough, had enough of it. And it was, yeah, it was definitely the epilepsy experience. So the story kind of starts as a junior in college and I was pre-law major and was committed to getting into law school to to get into international politics. That was kind of the the plan at that time. And yet studying for law was something that my brain really resisted. Like I could not find a way Mm. for these various rules and regulations and policies to stick in my in my mind. And so I continually failed the pre-assessment, you know, tests. So in the midst of studying my for my third round of the, wow. of the LSAT, I was, you know, mo- going from, I don't know, some class to the library on campus at my college campus. And I just fell out. I had a grand mal seizure right in the middle of the courtyard. And at that time, I had no idea what it was. I just, you know, from my perspective, I blacked out and fainted. And then when I came to, there were a bunch of people around me asking if I was okay. But then, you know, later going to the ER and things, realizing what had happened. And so I started to have these regular seizures. And the fact that it came out of the blue at 21 with no kind of indication that I had any kind of neurological damage before then really confused my medical team. And so they, you know, they put me on various medications, but the the seizures continued. And the the worst one was when I was on vacation with my family. I was doing something for my grandmother and then was like rushing to go get something from her room that she needed. And had another seizure at the top of the stairs, which resulted in me, you know, flying down the stairs with no bodily control and then suffering a oh concussion my as my head hits the ground. So mm. um, so after that ER visit, we were really, you know, my family, my parents and I were just like, okay, we really got to attend to this differently because it had already been, you know, maybe nine months on the meds at that point and just, you know, lots of doctor visits with no clarification or reasoning. And so one of my mom's friends was an energy massagist. And so she invited me to come get a, uh, have a session with her. And so I did that. And I remember 
um, as she had me lay down on the table and before, you know, energy massages don't really touch you, but before really even getting into any of the story and, and she probably knew very little about what was going on with me, but she knew enough to ask, what do you think your body is trying to tell you? Mm. And that was the first time anybody had asked me a question that my body had its own autonomy from me <laughs> and and that there was wisdom there to seek out. It was just it was just one uh-huh. of those questions that was just like, whoa, this is shifting my whole orientation to life. And it brought me to tears. It brought me to tears because I immediately the first thing that I was I, I felt and thought of was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to do this thing called law school and all, you know, like I don't want to be in that environment at all. And there was just this huge release of the resistance for finally it being recognized. And then, you know, and then all these other things started showing up about just like there's lots of places where I don't say no and I don't hold boundaries and that I, you know, put others before myself, right? The whole common list for many black women. Yes. And and that my body was trying to get my attention in in the best way that it could that this direction was not serving. So that that was really the turning point in my sense of like, okay, fuck this. Nope, you you're right. <laughs> I want to have this body for a long time. I want to stay on the planet for a long time. So we're we're going to get in alignment to to what the body needs. And then the more that I learned about epilepsy, right, and the that it's really an energetic imbalance in the body, it's a it's a surge of electricity that then the brain is incapable of managing and so just bursts out uh, throughout the body. And what I find fascinating about that is as I was learning more about energy bodies and energy and just the energy systems of the body beyond the physical, but also the etheric was that there was this point of an attempt to integrate this opportunity to bring more awareness that I am not just even this body and that the energies of my, you know, my larger self were wanting to come play and integrate and be involved. And so as I stopped resisting that and began to kind of value, right, the gifts that that integration brought, there was just, I I feel like my perception of what was going on in life uh, or around me definitely changed. And, And not to say like, you know, from that massage on, I never had a seizure, but there were definitely a decrease that helped me get off the medication and then create better you know, better practices in my life. And so, you know, that I just wasn't pushing my body hard. I stopped drinking alcohol so much. I was exercising and drinking more water and definitely meditation to deepen my awareness about what's the energy movement going on in my body today. Like, am I holding energy a lot in my neck? Are my you know fingers feeling tingly or am I like stressed in the back of my legs? I just started to pay more attention to how the energy was feeling. And I learned that my body gave me lots of signs of when it was close to feeling overwhelmed, that we would get to a seizure type experience. And I learned to be like, okay, as soon as you give me those early warning signs, I'm immediately stop. And that turned out to be one of the the best ways to circumvent the experience of it. And I haven't had a seizure now in 
nearly 20, 28 years. So I don't consider wow. that it's, uh, yeah, thankfully it's not an option that my body uses to get my attention anymore. Now it uses other things, but certainly not. not of that course. Way. Well, you're going to figure <laughs> that out too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Cause I think, you know, our body gives us signs all the time, but we ignore them, yeah. you know, yeah. until it's, it accumulates and mm-hmm. it knocks us down like physically, like yeah. it's not enough that a little nudge, oh no, we right. just got to be knocked to the floor right. to pay attention. Um, and I always say, you know, we look for answers when we haven't been asked the right questions. And your question was, what is your body trying to tell you? Mm-hmm. I love that, that that was the, the question to lead you in a new direction. And the fact that your mom happens to have a friend who does energy massage. Okay. Exactly, she was waiting right? for you. Right. Exactly. Like, <laughs> right? The answer, the she solution was waiting was right there. for you. She was right there. She was right there all along. I love it. I love it. But I think, you know, realizing that we have the permission to change directions, change course. Um, I had a coworker just yesterday. She said to me, you know, I went to school for all this, you know, but it's not really what I want to do, but I know I have to keep doing it. I was like, why? You don't have to keep doing it. It's okay to course correct, change directions, come up with a new plan, a new vision, because that feeling of not having permission is what's now going to cause her to start to have those physical symptoms, you know, overwhelmed, she's got headaches, she's stressed. But I think, you know, you just have to feel like you have permission to to do to make a different choice and that it's mm-hmm. okay. Like mm-hmm. who's it going to hurt if I decide to choose another career mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or yeah, or even and changing like spiritual a, practices. People feel like they can't change from anything that they've started yeah, out with. Right. Like, okay, I started out going to this church. So does that mean you can't change churches, change denominations, create a new practice and just have a new way of, of you and your connection, you know, with the higher spirit, you know? I love that. I love that. Yeah. I feel like it, it's a constant like peeling of the layers in terms of where can I give myself more permission? All right. Yes, that that was great. Like I even think about this in terms of my daily practice of journaling and meditation and movement. Sometimes it serves me and sometimes it really doesn't. And I have to think of like, what else is needed here? What else needs to like be let go of? Am I giving myself permission to explore other modalities that may serve me better than the ones that, you know, used to serve? And I was, I was taking a course with Sonia Renee Taylor and Adrian Marie Brown last year or the year before called Radical Permission. And they had, they had such a, a beautiful little journal book that kind of came with the course, but with this theme, right, of like, where are you giving yourself permission and how can you go deeper? Always deeper, always deeper. Mm. Um, and, I, and I love that invitation because there's, there's always more that we can, you know, uncover in our own selves, particularly when, it, you know, when we're talking about the liberation movement or the decolonization movement and these, these cultural practices that white supremacist patriarchy, as Bell Hooks calls it, influences us, right, to, to internalize mm. our limitations and to internalize that we're not worthy. And so as you deconstruct those beliefs, you get to play with, okay, well, what do I believe about myself? How do I demonstrate that I am worthy enough to cultivate a, a career or a relationship that makes me feel good? It's deep stuff, deep stuff. That's not a linear journey at all, but is absolutely, you know, I I just, I can't imagine a life 
not examined in this way. Yeah. And there's power in that, you know, being able to examine it in your own way. That's how we can claim our power over it. You know, Mm -hmm. the redefining, reclaiming and exploring. Mm -hmm. So I want to hear, Nina, about this land that you live on. I never Mm -hmm. heard of Monacan. Tell me a little about about these farmlands and forests that I clearly know nothing about. I'm like, is that where (laughs) she lives? I had no idea. Um, well, I, I'm sure everyone, or most Americans anyway, know the story of Jamestown in Virginia as one of the earliest mm-hmm. colonial projects. And the people who were here or, you know, there in that place were a collection of indigenous tribes. One was the Powhatan, Powhatan, uh, where the Pocahontas story comes from. And a neighboring tribe was the Monacan. And the Monacan have a really beautiful story because the Powhatan actually say they come from the Monacan and that they're an older culture. And there's still individuals or a community here locally that can draw their roots. So they are by no means vanished. They are very much here and present. Mm. And what I, when my husband and I brought this, bought a couple of acres on this land, one of my commitments was to learn how to be a good steward of the land. And so one of the first steps in that commitment was to learn the history. So I too knew very little of this, but I wanted to start digging so that I could answer this question. And then the second piece was, okay, how can I be a contribution to the healing? Because Virginia overall, but you know, the U.S. really overall, is a colonial project. It is a very literal process of stealing land from one people and giving it to others and utilizing paperwork to contribute towards that loss and theft. And so as a participant in the system, because I am, I'm a taxpayer and I, you know, pay a mortgage, I wanted to find ways that I could honor Uh, and recognize the reality of that and how it still impacts lineages today. And that actually brought me to uh, studying my own genealogy and realizing that I have an ancestor who was enslaved in Virginia, uh, not too far from this land. And that too has kind of rerouted me to what I'm here to do on this land and uh, and the stewardship of that healing invitation is very active here. So yeah, and so part of it is gardening, part of it is ceremony, part of it is continuing to tell the story and the name, the history and the realities of what it is to be here and live in the United States right now, and also the great blessing that it is to to be here and to be on in this on this land in particular. So you are now my shiro. You're my guide. <laughs> you're my leader because I inherited land from my great grandfather in South Carolina. It's three acres, but my grandmother remembers her grandfather living on that land. Oh, that's so. My vision for, you know, within the next five years is to build a home down there and have a large garden, plant fruit trees, host farm to table meals. And I love when I go down, we get lost in the woods on the property, my cousins and I, and and we get grounded. So I look forward to to doing some of that as well. It's so important. It is so so important to just be, you know, connected 
Yes. And maintain yes. that connection and learn more about the land. On one trip down, we went to the records department to trace back mm-hmm. the, the property ownership. But there's so much I still don't know. Um, so I look forward to learning more. I love that. Um, about the journey that. that led my ancestors there to that Camden, South Carolina, the oldest inland town in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to have a conversation about South Carolina because I definitely have some some branches of my tree as well that that go through a couple of places there. And there's so so much rich, rich history, you know, both terrifyingly depressing and uplifting and inspirational. And I think the more that we, particularly as Black people, look into this, um, and I'm glad there are more, you know, tools and availability, like it's just more possible to to do this research, that it's it's just, like you said, it's it's rerouting. It's, it's being able to claim something that really nourished us, that really sustained our people, like literally from the land, and to, to return to that uh, is such a blessing. So yes, much more to, to explore with you about that. Yes, we may have to, we could probably film that whole journey there, you know, we mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing about where you live and reminding us of the importance of maintaining those connections and reconnecting to the land that nourishes us. So thank you for sharing about that. Any final words for the listener today? I think I want to just offer, you know, as the the theme of this podcast, inviting you to to fuck being stuck, the powerful question that that the universe provided to me when I needed to hear it of what is your body trying to tell you and that our bodies are talking to us all of the time. And I deeply believe our spirits and our, you know, capital S selves are trying to get our attention all of the time. And so cultivating a practice to tune down your inner chatter today, just give yourself like five minutes to start to play with that inner listening so that you can be on one accord with your own self to create a life that, that is more nourishing to you. So grateful to, to have had the chance to have this conversation and so thankful for you, Sabrina, for the invitation. Thank you, Nina. So that's it for today's episode, everyone. Uh, The social media links to uh, connect with Nina will be in the show notes. We ask that you subscribe to the show and write us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for tuning into Fuck Being Stuck, the podcast. Be sure to check out the show's notes for this episode on www.drsabrinanicole.com and follow us on social media. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. We'll be back next week with more. See you then.